All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for another opportunity to come together and to hear your word, to think about your word, to ingest your word, to learn about you, to grow in you. I thank you that, the, that you show us such great grace when we come together uh, centered on your word. You show us the great grace of being here among us through your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wondrous things in your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Satisfy us with your steadfast love as we see it revealed in the face of Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. And Father, I pray for Elizabeth, who can't be here with us this morning. I ask that you would speed her recovery, heal her body, that you would make her kids extra obedient while she's not feeling quite up to wrangling them in the usual manner that she does, uh, that you would help them to help her, and that your spirit would be uh, would make your presence known to her in a very real and felt way uh, throughout this sickness, that you would comfort her in her uh, ailment and that you would help her to recover quickly. We pray these things through Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. So... The, um, the series on emotions that we're doing, The Anatomy of the Soul, we are going through a list of emotions. And first, first with every emotion, we're talking about how God is the paradigm for that emotion. God, that emotion begins with God. God felt it before uh, any human being felt these emotions. God felt these emotions. The, our emotional experience is a reflection of God's experience of creation. It's a finite reflection of his infinite emotional experience. Now, we've talked about happiness for the last two weeks. We talked about the fact that God is a happy God, that his natural state, the, 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 how we know him at his very essence, his, his essential emotional experience is happiness. But... We all know that he has ordained for himself by creating a world that could rebel against him. He's, create, he's ordained for himself the moving away <laughs> from that happiness, the disturbance of that happiness, you could almost say. And it's like when, when you have children, you, you're perfectly happy. You may be perfectly happy with your wife, just the two of you. But then when you have children, you are ordaining for yourself. You are deciding this, we're going to make life a little harder. We are ordaining for ourselves, one, both a greater joy, because you get to have the joy of your children. It's great when they see, when they're just itty bitty bitty, and they start to recognize things for the first time, and they start to see reality just to see life through their eyes is a reinvigorating thing. It's a joyful thing. But then they hit around two and they start to rebel. They rebel before that, but two is where you really notice. And they start to really kick against you. And you have to start punishing them. You have to start disciplining them. And then your happiness takes on a bit of sorrow. There's grief intermixed with your happiness of being a parent because you have to 
discipline them. You have to be hard. You have to be firm. You have to train them in righteousness. And if you don't, they'll be ruined. We were talking about this yesterday at the tailgate. One of uh, David's sons, one of the biggest critiques of David was that he had one son that he never told no. He never told him no. He never disciplined him. And so this son ends up committing horrible crimes against his family. And all because David didn't want to under, he didn't want to disturb his own happiness by disciplining his child. God is not like that. God has ordained for himself pain by creating beings outside himself who can rebel against him, whom he loves. So, the first grief is actually the very first emotion that we see in the Bible. If you're reading chronologically, you're reading right from the beginning to the end. Grief is the first emotional experience of God in the Bible that is directly attributed to him. And it's attributed to him in Genesis chapter 6, and that's going to be our main text for this morning. So Genesis chapter 6, and talking about this because it's revealed in a weird context. Genesis chapter 6, talking about God's grief, requires a little bit of explanation, but I'm, we're going to read it. If you want to go down some really long rabbit trails, we can do that, but uh, you'll understand why in just a second. Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 11. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Read that again. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. So, a couple of things. First, we see here the pattern of emotions. This is the paradigmatic passage for this pattern of emotions that I've talked about since day one. What is the pattern? There's a stimulus. There's something out here. There's something outside of you that you're going to have an emotional reaction to. You're going to see that stimulus. You see it. You perceive it somehow. And then you evaluate that stimulus. And that evaluation, how you evaluate that stimulus, creates the emotional response in you then that emotion, emotional response is meant to motivate action. 
supposed to put you into action. Different emotions are meant to motivate different actions, meant to communicate different things to you, and they're supposed to connect us to God and to one another. That's the purpose of emotions. And we see that all right here. So first, Yahweh sees. He sees something. He perceives something. That wickedness, that the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So total depravity. He sees that humans are completely depraved and, and unable to save themselves, unable to right the ship. And so he evaluates. It says that Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth. What is his evaluation of this state of things? This is a regretful thing. This is a terrible thing. This is not a good thing that humanity in its state of evil has, has flooded the earth with violence. This is not a good thing. So he evaluates. And then what happens? Does he just make a decision? Does he just move? Does, no, the Bible is at pains to tell us that he has an emotional reaction. He has a real emotional experience of pain because of the rebellion of his children, because of the ruination of the world that he made. It grieved him to the heart. At the very core of his being, there was, a, there was, there was grief. Something like a wound is the idea behind grief, a pain, an opening, a tearing. It, you could say it pierced his heart. So Yahweh acts. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. So there's two actions that Yahweh takes here. The second one is, but Noah found favor in Yahweh's eyes. First thing that he does in reaction to this evil that grieves him and his grief is that he says, I've got to make a clean slate. This has got to be wiped out and put down. But he doesn't stop there. He says, we've got to make a new start. Got to make a clean slate. Got to make a new start. Now, this is what grief is meant to do within us. The purpose of grief, what grief, the, the action that, that grief is meant to motivate in us is it's supposed to make us step back, reevaluate things, and try to and make a change when something has wounded us deeply. When a loss has wounded us deeply, we have to step back evaluate what to do next, and figure out how to make a new start. And that's what we see God doing. Now, you know, if you want to get into God's unchanging nature and things like that, go back and listen to the podcast. It's a benefit of the podcast. Go back and listen to episode one. We talked all about it. But what's important is that God has a real emotional experience here. And He wants us, He's at pains to tell us that this is real, that it really grieves Him. And human sin motivates Him to wipe humanity out but to save a remnant and to show them undeserved favor. So it not only motivates his judgment, but it motivates his grace. 
in his favor. So I wanted to briefly just talk. I had this thought about that idea of uh, God's impassibility and what that looks like. I, I was thinking about, I, th I thought of a, a better um, illustration of that, and I wanted to share that with you at this point. Uh, when we talk about God's emotions, we're using what's called like observational language. You know what I'm talking about? Like the sun rose this morning. You got up, you said, oh, what a beautiful sunrise. Now, strictly speaking, that is not true. The sun did not rise this morning, strictly speaking. Earth is, is orbiting around the sun, pulled in by its gravity, and it spins as it does so. And the light from the sun streams down. The sun never changes position. The sun doesn't change. It's stable. It's right there in the center. And earth is going around it, and it's spinning. Earth is changing. But from the perspective of everybody on earth, as the light from the sun hits that sphere at a certain place, what do we see? From our perspective, we see the sun appearing to go up over the horizon. And so that's how we describe it. So when we describe God's emotional, emotional state, when we describe God's grief, we're talking about that in the same kind of language that we talk about the sunrise. The sunrise is real. And everybody, just, even the most uh, logical scientists in the world still call it the sunrise. They don't call it the orbital rotation uh, coming into focus rise or something. You know, they don't call it something like that. They call it the sunrise. You, go, you watch the weather in the morning, sunrise will be at 641. Uh, and God wants, the sun is real and the sunrise is real. And the heat from the sun is real. God's emotions are real, and our experience of it, we describe with language like we describe the sunrise. And that doesn't mean that it's not real or it's less real. It actually means that it's greater than our words can contain, which means that God's grief is greater than our words can, can, can contain. So what is grief or sadness? What do we learn about it from this passage? The Hebrew word... If you're interested in some Hebrew, is atzav. It's a verb. It means to hurt. It means to cause pain, to grieve, to shape, or to shape or to fashion. This is what I find fascinating about the word, Hebrew word for grief. It means to cause pain, to wound, to suffer, or to shape, or to fashion. The same word. Now, the first meaning is obvious where it comes from. It's, the, it's just the simple word for wounding, for pain. After Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, it's the word used to describe when he, when he uh, lays the curse on childbirth. And he says, your pain will be multiplied in childbirth. That's the word that he uses to describe it. Your grief will be multiplied in childbirth. Your, and then he, say, he turns to the man and he says, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to get food out of the earth. Now work is going to be a pain to you. It's going to be a grief to you. It's going to be a sorrowful thing for you to have to do this. And this idea of shaping comes up out of that, comes up out of that meaning of agonizing over something. You guys, you guys have created things before and done a bad job at it, right? And you agonize over creating something. I've, I've tried pottery one time, and it was like I wanted to be a great potter. I was bad at it. And so I'm shaping the pottery, and it's just 
it's going all over the place because my anticipation was that I'd be able to make like a perfect vase the first time I ever did it because I'm just good at everything like that. And <laughs> it did not go well. And it was an agony. And I poured more agony in. So I went back and made a bowl instead, something more, something easier. And that didn't go well either. So an ashtray without a spinning wheel, that's what I ended up with. <laughs> but if you want to become good at shaping something, if you want to become good at something, you have to agonize over it. You have to keep at it. You have to fail a whole bunch of times. And it's going to bring you lots of sorrow and lots of grief and lots of pain, but you're going to end up with something that can give you great joy. A skill, an ability, whatever that comes out on the other end. And the way to endure that pain is like Jesus, the joy set before you. The, if I had endured and become a great potter, it would have been the joy of great pottery set before me that would have kept me going. So that's what it, it means, essentially a pain, a wound. Uh, it means a physical wound, but it's applied to emotions. We talk this way, don't we? When you lose something very valuable to you, you talk about it leaving a wound. And that's the biblical metaphor, that it uh, losing something valuable, especially the most valuable things to you, leaves a wound. Now, sorrow, grief, the purpose of grief, of the emotion of grief, is to step back and take the time to figure out how to let that wound heal. Now, what do we do? I, I got a call from a friend this week who uh, went through a bad breakup three years ago. Thought he was going to marry this girl. Uh, she dumped him. And it was so devastating a wound to him that he has spent the last three years basically intoxicated the entire time. As often as he can stay intoxicated, as, long as, as often as he can stay drunk, that's what he's doing. Now, why is he doing that? Because of this great gaping wound. Because all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his love, everything was poured into this relationship. This relationship became everything, became his whole world. It was going to meet every one of his needs. It was going to do everything that God alone can do for him. And then when it was ripped away, his whole life was ripped out from him. His heart was torn out from him. And that is painful. That's a real pain. God, now, God doesn't say don't grieve things that you lose. You have genuine needs. And, they, and when they are lost, they should genuinely be mourned and grieved. But we as Christians don't grieve like those who have no hope. My friend, on the other hand, the wound was too painful for him. And I'm trying to get him help. I'm, he's living in Cincinnati now, and I'm trying to get help for him. And I'm texting with him, calling with him, trying to figure this out. Because he needs to stop dulling the pain. What happens when you have a big gaping wound and you don't get it dressed and taken care of right away? Gangrene, infection, death. What happens if you just dull the pain? The pain is there for a purpose. It's meant to draw you back so you have a moment to stop and think and figure out how this great gaping hole in my life can be filled. 
How can this wound begin to knit back together? If you lost, you, you, you lose a child, some great grievous thing that happens to you, that's a, the children are a good gift from God. What happens if you don't take the time to step back and grieve that loss? And, oh, you lost a dream. You, you had hopes for your life that it was going to go a certain way, and now it's not going that way. Everything is off the rails. Nothing seems... You, you feel sad. You feel grief. You feel... And when that, pro, that, when, that, when that goes over a long period of time, it becomes de this depressive state that triggers with your physicality that keeps you down the whole time. Like you, you feel like you can't get back up because you've lost the center of your life and you can't even figure out how to start to put things back together again. Grief, that feeling of grief, if you avoid it, if you avoid the pain, you don't let the doctor touch the wound because it hurts too bad, it'll never get healed. And so the first thing we have to do with grief is exactly what God does here is feel it. Sit in it. God sits in his own grief. He lets it come on him. He doesn't stop. God could have stopped his grief. God could have said, I'm not going to grieve for them. I'm going to wipe them out. They're doing horrible, awful things. I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to show grace to Noah. We didn't need this line in here to know that God is just to, do the, to, to justly judge people in rebellion against him. But what does he want us to know? He wants us to know that he took the time to sit and grieve the loss of his good creation, of his beloved bride. So what are the things that do grieve God? And this gets into this a little bit more. First, in Genesis 6 through 11, there are four things, and there's a couple other passages that we'll look at that, where we see things that grieve God. What makes, because we want to align our grief. We want to grieve over the things that grieve God. And if something doesn't grieve God, we don't want to grieve over it. He told Aaron, uh, the priest, Aaron, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus chapter 9, they go in to the tabernacle and they uh, presume to take the role of their father and present this strange fire. It's a weird little story. And then God consumes them with fire. And then he turns to Aaron, their dad, and says, don't grieve. You're not allowed to grieve. He says, don't cut your hair, which was a thing that you would do in grief. Don't throw dust on your face because you represent me. Because Aaron represented him. He says, don't grieve because I brought this judgment on your sons. I judged that what they were doing was evil and that they want glorifying me before the people and treating me like I was holy. So you don't grieve because I'm not grieving them. Now that's a little scary, right? <laughs> so there are good th there are things we ought to grieve over and there are things we ought not to grieve over. Now, to determine what we ought to grieve over, we need to look at what grieves God. Same thing with happiness, same thing with every emotion. 
There are things that ought to make you happy. And there are things that ought not. God says, I don't rejoice in the death of the wicked. So did he rejoice at the death of Nadab and Abihu? No. But he also didn't grieve. Because he refused to let Aaron grieve. So we need to, in order to figure out what things ought to grieve us and what things ought not to grieve us, and therefore be able to navigate our grief much better, we need to first look at the things that grieve God. First, look at verses 1 and 2, and this is where it gets a little weird. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay. Some people think that, this is, that the sons of God means that this was fallen angels who came down and mated with human women. Some people think that these were just merely warlords called the sons of God because that was a common name for warlords, war chiefs, and kings in the time when this was going on. That just took harems for themselves and were multiplying violence on the earth. They became bloodthirsty, blood kings, kings who built their kingdoms on bloodshed. And they did that also by taking harems and violating God's design for marriage. Now, I, my personal interpretation of this is a combination of the two. I think that these are bloodthirsty war chiefs who are uh, taking multiple wives for themselves. They're creating harems. They are, they are abusing and uh, um, mistreating women and therefore disregarding God's design for marriage. And they're doing this. Why does it insist on calling them the sons of God and seem to put this supernatural tag on them? Because they're doing this under the influence of demonic, of demonic powers. Paul in the New Testament will talk about the powers and principalities that lie behind our uh, current world systems. That things are as... Vladimir Putin in Russia is as evil as it's being right now, not just because of an evil man, but because evil powers lie behind the evil men. Our war is not against flesh and blood. It is against powers and principalities that lie in the heavenly places. So there are evil powers that want to distort the image of God in the world that hijack human ability, hijack human beings, and use them to defame God. That makes God really sad. That grieves God. This violation of his design for marriage is the first thing that we see in the entire Bible that grieves him. The violation of God's design for marriage. Now, why would that grieve God? Because marriage, we learn from Paul, in Ephesians, is an image. It's a living tableau. It's a living image. It is a, it's meant to send a message to the universe that Yahweh is going to wed His creation, that heaven and earth were made to be one, that, yet, that, that this is His bride when he creates Adam and Eve in Genesis, he is creating for himself a bride. He is creating for himself. He creates marriage. He doesn't look down at marriage and go, hey, here's this really good thing that humans have going. And it'll make a great comparison to me and my relationship with humanity. 
I'm going to use that as a metaphor. No, he invents marriage to create the metaphor for us so that we know what his love for us is like. He lets us be husbands to wives and wives to husbands so that the difference, God is different than us, he is other, but he's also made us for connection to him. And that's the picture that marriage makes, that God is is other, We're, we're different than each other as men and women, but we're made for connection to one another. And what flows out of that connection? New life. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. He wants the earth to be filled with his glory. Now, how does his earth, how does the earth get filled with God's glory? Is it just suffused with light? Is that what he's talking about? Go around and set up glory poles or something that are going to shine my glory out into the world? Is that what he's commanding Adam and Eve? Absolutely not. He's saying, make children. Make more of yourselves because you are the glory. You are my glory. You are my image. You bear my image. And the more people you fill the earth with, the more the earth is going to be filled with my glory. So do that. And it grieves him to see the utter inversion of all of that that's going on in this passage. The utter inversion of that being that men, because what it does, it declares about God that he just wants to take advantage of humanity, that he wants to use and abuse the world that he's created because that's what these men are doing to their harem wives. He wants to bring, God is only interested in bringing bloodshed and violence on the earth because they're filling the earth with violence. That's what, that's the message that these lives are telling. And it grieves God to think that his children whom he loves would think of him that way. And if you look at the ancient mythologies that came out of these worldviews that, that thought God was a bloodthirsty God, God, all the ancient mythologies say that God founded the world basically on blood and sex. And God says, you're not going to misrepresent me like that. Instead of filling the earth with his glory, they've filled the earth with bloodshed and violence. And that grieves God. Verse 5, the second thing, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Yahweh is grieved, not just by evil human actions, but by evil human hearts. He's not just grieved by the actions that you commit. You can't hide anything from him. He's grieved that you're twisted inwardly that sin and rebellion and cutting yourself off from him has laid on you a crushing weight that bends you and and makes you crooked and unable to even see right from wrong. You were not made for that. You were made for glorious knowledge of God, knowing good and evil, filling earth with glory. That's what you were made for. And he sees how sin and rebellion has twisted the things that he loves from the very depths of their being, and it flows out into their actions, and it grieves him. Third thing, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Now the corrupt earth, it's not just our outward actions, that grieve God. It's not just our inward state that grieves God, but it is a corrupt culture that grieves God. They were supposed to cultivate life. Adam and Eve were supposed to take the garden and expand the walls and fill the earth with it. So there was a river of life flowing out of the garden, and they were supposed to plant trees of life alongside that river to fill the earth with life. 
and turn the whole world into a garden. Now, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what Jesus does in the book of Revelation. He accomplishes God's purpose. There's a river flowing out from the new city, new heavens, new earth, and that river is life itself. And on either side of it is the tree of life, the place where you can go and taste God's own life. He wants you to be able to eat of his own life and being cut off from that and filling a world with death instead of life and cultures that are cultures of death instead of cultures of life grieve him. Now we have a, I mean, we live in a culture of death, right? We know this. I'm preaching the choir here on that. Just know that God's first reaction, our reaction often is, anger, right? That the fact that we live in a culture of death, and it does make God angry. But what's his first emotion? Grief. Before you get angry at the people doing uh, trans, uh, sex, uh, trans sex operations on children, before you get angry at abortionists, before you get angry at a world that wants to destroy God's image, First, you need to grieve what's lost in that. And there's not enough of that coming from the church. There's a lot of anger at that coming from the church. But we're not displaying God's grief over that the way that we display God's anger over it. We need to do a better job. We need to do a better job of grieving over what the culture is doing to the image of God in the world. Let me hit this fourth one. Verse 11, the earth is filled with violence. You would expect God, God is, a, God is in some respects apparent to his creation. And what do you do when someone violently hurts one of your children? What's your emotional response? Anger, yes but you grieve for the child that's lost. You grieve for the child that's hurt. And so he grieves over the violence that's filled the earth. Now grief motivates God for judgment in the flood, but it also motivates his favor towards Noah. He doesn't just judge, not just clean, but step back and make a new start. And now he makes a plan initiates a plan through Noah, not to just temporarily deal with his grief, but to permanently deal with it. Because what happens through Noah? Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Shem is the father of 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 Abram, to whom God makes a promise. What was the promise he made to their father, Adam? One day I'm going to come, I'm going to send a son through the woman who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to crush all this evil, who's going to deal with this permanently. This is just a picture. The flood that comes is just a picture of the permanent flood of righteousness, the permanent flood of grace that flows from the cross. A new river of life begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. What happens? They pierce his side, and what happens? Blood and water flow from the tree flow from his side. 
where does the woman come from? <laughs> she comes from his side. Like the life and the new creation is flowing from the side, from the pierced, wounded side of Jesus Christ to flood the world with his glory and to remake humanity for everybody that tastes of it. And he says, if you come to me and drink water from me, you take life from me, every one of you is going to become just like that. You're going to become a fountain of living water. He doesn't want you to be an agent of... He grieves when we are agents of death in the world, and he rejoices to see his children becoming agents of life through their connection with Jesus Christ. So, there's a couple other things that grieve God we could talk about. We see Jesus' grief deeply in the garden. We see him grieve. We see, uh, and we see the Holy Spirit. We, we're told, Paul tells us, and he's, it seems like he's quoting Isaiah, he says that the Holy Spirit grieves. And here's just a point of application on this whole life flowing out of you, what this looks like. I definitely wanted to get here. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he says, what does he say grieves the Holy Spirit? So all of this, how can we as Christians, he says, we as Christians even now can grieve God, can grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it look like for a Christian to be a source of death instead of life in the world that grieves God and grieves his spirit? Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Go back one verse to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. What is, this, what is, what is the opening <laughs> to your fountain of life? It's your mouth. It's the way you speak. How do you give life to people? Isaiah uh, uh, pictures Jesus asking the Father, give me an ear like one who is taught so that I might learn to sustain with a word him who is perishing. There's the power, James says, the power in life and death is in the tongue. You have right here by the Holy Spirit the ability to speak life into people's lives and when you shut it up, when, when you have an opportunity to say something to someone that might sustain the perishing and you instead choose to close your mouth, you are denying God's life flowing into the world and the Holy Spirit grieves. Or when you open your mouth and what comes out, James says, should dirty water and clean water come out of the same fountain? These things should not be. So just a real practical application for grief, the God's grief. He grieves when we don't represent him and the life that he offers through our words. Just be careful. But Christ spoke words of life, gives us new life through the cross, by dying in our place. He suffered the violence. He was drowned under the flood so that he could get, him, get for him, so he could re-secure for himself that bride. 
And that's all of us. And we're in Him. Let me pray and we will head our way. Father, I thank You that You are a God who grieves. That You're not some cold, distant, emotional God, but You grieve and You grieve with us. Lord, through Jesus, You took our grief upon Yourself. Lord, we perceived Him as one who was a man of sorrows and full of grief, that He was just he was, he was sorrowful and grieving. But Lord, it was our griefs that were laid on Him. It was our sorrows He was carrying. And I ask that You would help us to look to Him as He carries our griefs, carries our sorrows, uh, so that our sorrows, our griefs, our wounds might be healed. The wounds of sadness and grief that we experience would be healed and that we might become able to bear the burdens of others and so fulfill the law of Christ. That we might become fountains of living water. That we might fill the earth with Your glory. Pray that You would give us words that sustain the perishing. Holy Spirit, we're sorry for the times we've grieved you through our silence or through our foul speech that misrepresents our God. Help us to grieve the things we ought to grieve, rejoice over the things we ought to rejoice over, and to look to you as our, as our paradigm, as the, as the way to grieve well. Give us life. Heal our wounds through Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you. Together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. Thanks, everybody.